0: Welcome to Portrait of a Londoner. In this podcast, we're hoping to represent the diversity of people who live and work in London. And the themes for our podcast are community, equality, and diversity. Following the death of George Floyd and the protests in the USA and in the UK, we decided to run a mini series on racism in the UK. This week, we're talking to Jason Page, who works at the Migration Museum, and this is the second in our mini-series. So if you haven't already listened, please do check out our first episode, which was with Stephen Ismail Thomas.
1: Jason Page has a portfolio career. He works as operations manager at the Migration Museum in Lewisham. The Migration Museum is shining a light on the many ways that movement of people to and from Britain across the ages has shaped who we are, as communities, as individuals and as a nation. Jason also runs the South East Salon, which serves as a creative exchange bringing creativity, enterprise and resources to new and exciting spaces throughout South East London. We asked Jason his thoughts on what has been going on in the media after the killing of George Floyd in the US and the response to this by people from all backgrounds.
2: I'll say first, I've lived in the UK for 11 years. I moved here with my then partner, now wife. We sort of got really lucky in landing in Southeast London, just because it's very reminiscent for me of a lot of other places I've lived. I was born in Seattle and then moved to Washington, D.C., and then moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then moved to Colorado, where I went to university. And most of my family is from Colorado. Before that, my family was from you know Alabama, Tennessee, Michigan, I think South Carolina. My my dad worked for the National Urban League and different affiliates around the country. And the Urban League, for people that don't know, I I sort of compare it to the NAACP. Uh, It it is an organization that speaks on behalf of African-Americans in the States. It's a national organization. There are affiliates all around the country. They're led by individual leadership and boards of trustees. So they each have their own agenda. So it's almost like um, he... My father who got got his start with the Urban League in, in Seattle at a very tumultuous time. or And then he was organizing, you know, networks between, you know, young kids and cultural institutions and the police and things like that. Moved to D.C. because it was, a, it was literally a bigger market, not a bigger opportunity to grow within the organization. And then moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee to sort of help build up that Urban League. And there he was very much focused in uh, job training. And then I moved to Colorado Springs as he got older, which coincidentally was the end of my high school years and going to university and also to be closer to family. And that's where he retired. But we did move around. It was sort of a weird thing to have that history at various times, just to kind of be moving moving house quite a bit. But... Mm it was kind of, it was cool because by the time I moved here, so in between there, I moved to moved to New York City, moved to Brooklyn for 10 years. Right. So I've always been the new person in the room. I've always sort of been able to adapt. adapt and- exactly.
3: Mm. And your dad was clearly very politically a- active and very active in his yeah. work life. And how's that impacted you and your...
2: Uh, tremendously. Both of them were actually, um, I think, as, as is the case with a lot of uh, families, especially in the mid to late... 20th century. Hope this I, it's safe in saying this. We moved around because of my father's work, so my mother was always sort of finding new things to do. Whereas they both were were trained in social work, have both have advanced degrees, and so she was a teacher. She ran galleries. She ran the Girls Incorporated in Chattanooga, Tennessee, for a time, and other other businesses, other 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 um, organizations. So she was always always doing something as well, whether it was. You know activist-based or community-based or education or arts-related, but I think for me the biggest the biggest impact that I think it had on me was always being aware of social justice and always being aware of bringing people together. I just watched them do that all of my life, sort of hosting people and you know producing events, and um, there was always somebody coming into town to speak or a dinner or a tour. I mean, one of the things that we would do, for instance, living in Washington, D.C., if somebody came through town, we'd drive downtown and take, take the drive around, you know, see the Washington Monument, and the White House, and, you know, same with Colorado, same with Tennessee. And because of that, I got to know a lot of people who, not I wouldn't say meeting a lot of famous people, but a lot of people in the movement uh, from the Urban League or the NAACP or fraternities, sororities, government, other community-based organizations, artists, uh, musicians, um, just by virtue of the fact that we were constantly around these types of movements, these types of organizations. And I guess another impact would be, like I said before, is always being able to adapt to new spaces, new new groups. Just before we move on from that point, kind of being
0: immersed in that kind of um, environment and having the opportunities to speak to lots of different people, apart from, obviously, it's influenced the work you do now because you're trying to get people together and network. But are there any other ways that you think having that exposure... To those people that shaped you?
2: I would go back to the social justice spe- piece, especially mm. with what's going on now. I think this is both a point of contention, but also sometimes a point of strength. And I'm sure a lot of other people feel this way. The older I get, the more I realize what I wasn't taught in school about history and about people and just the human history of us here. And how that sort of leads up to where we are today. So, with current events, you know, with the with the killing of of George Floyd, or Breonna Taylor, or or Ahmaud Arbery, uh, most recently, there's a lot of shock. There's a lot of disbelief. There's a lot of discussion about how we got here, and oh, quite horrifyingly, the things that they have done prior to these acts how they might have contributed or what were the circumstances that led up to the, to the death. Just sort of in that realm of, of shock and awe, to phrase, to use a phrase from our, our George Bush days. For me, because of what I learned outside of school, I was always aware of injustice. I was always aware of white supremacy. I was always aware of the, the transgressions of the police and the justice system system racism, sexism, classism within these within these organizations, mm. with these within these institutions. I was always aware of redlining. I was always aware of, of disenfranchisement and the way that urban cities, especially and rural places in, in America specifically, sort of have have evolved over time with, with regards to these things. And so I was always able to apply that to current events. Mm. If something happened and there's a headline, mm. well this person was killed or this particular thing happened or this person was elected Mm -hmm. there's always an underlying understanding about the components that led us to this event and in some cases especially with specifically like the election of of donald trump a lot of people don't like to talk about this but Mm -hmm. there's 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 a lot of people that feel the way i do we saw it coming Mm
3: -hmm.
2: but specifically because there's a huge there's a growing sentiment there's a bubbling uh resurfacing of white supremacy. There's also a disenfranchisement of a lot of white Americans in America, in the US, who don't feel like they've been um heard, heard exactly. And then a lot of people don't want to talk about this, but I think because there is a two party system, there's work that Hillary Clinton didn't do. Going to that white belt, late, well, well well, addressing that. Population, yeah. but also assuming that people of color would vote Democrat mm. and come to the polls because yeah. how would how could you possibly vote for this other person? Mm. So again, there's a, there's huge huge swaths of people that saw this coming because of what they knew to be true in America previously. Mm-hmm. But I will say I will say this as well: the older I get, the more I realize the easier it is for us to talk about these things as opposed to when I was younger it was always difficult to bring things up and speak freely about racism, sexism, classism and in a way that people, you know, in the same way that one of the things I learned about sexism is I need to not be so offended when it's talked about, when it's brought up. I need to sort of, in the way I put it, you know, take myself out of it to hear about it and to hear what's, what someone is telling me about this situation because I'm learning something new and then put myself back into it to try to find solutions or examine what I'm doing to perpetuate it and try to fix those things. Mm. Um, so I always sort of use, use that as an example to try to articulate that we have an opportunity now mm. because this history is right in front of us. It's not, it's not a secret. And you know, especially with technology, there's ways to find this stuff out. And there are reasons why we're, there, there, there. are specific reasons why we are dealing with the, the, the horrible things that are happening today.
3: Having been to the Migration Museum uh, before lockdown, it's a great space. Tell us a bit more about the Migration Museum.
2: So the Migration Museum has been around for, um, I hope I don't get this wrong, for at least seven years. It has been in the Lewisham Shopping Centre since February. We currently have a year lease in the Lewisham Shopping Centre. And before that, they were in a place called The Workshop in Lambeth for two years. Uh, so the my, museum, it's, the museum project itself has been around for many years as Projects and educational programs um, and producing exhibits that travel and programs that travel. So, over the last two or three years, they've had the benefit of being in in a location to build out exhibits and bring people into a space, a physical space, which is fantastic. Uh, I just started in February, um, coincidentally, uh, right before the lock, right before the pandemic hit. We opened our doors on Valentine's Day and it was fantastic. Whereas they were having maybe five people. At a, at a clip coming in the doors on a day, we've, we were reaching numbers of 300 and 400 a day, sometimes many more than that on the weekends, mm-hmm. just by virtue of the fact that we're in the, in, the, in the shopping center in the mall. And so that also has, its, has some interesting experiences. This, the Migration Museum itself is all about sharing stories. You know, there's, There seems to be museums of this kind all over Europe, but the UK doesn't have one. And it is all about sharing stories about people coming to and from the UK.
3: It's quite an immersive space, isn't it? So you, you, it, know, you move through rooms
2: that... It is. Um, right now there's an exhibit called Room to Breathe that is very immersive. As you said, it's very interactive. There's lots of different... Uh, stories to be told, and places you can sort of open drawers and leave your stories in different places. There's a bedroom, there's a kitchen, there's a classroom, and there's a barbershop. And there's an exhibit that was slated to open this summer called Departures, which is all about people leaving the UK. So it, it explores a lot of different themes. There was a football exhibit planned. Uh, there is a football exhibit planned for the future. It's nice to be in the in the in the mall because it is a tremendously large commercial unit which gives us a lot of room, literally room to breathe and room to spread out. But also um, the reach is fantastic. Before they were in a, in a workshop space uh, in Lambeth, they were sort of on a back road. And here we get so many people coming through the doors that are have heard about us and they want to come and visit, but a lot more that don't even know what it is. And they pass by and they sort of look up at the sign and they come in and like, oh my God, this is amazing.
0: That's me, yeah, yeah, I was one of those people. <laughs>
2: Who started it? The woman by the name of sophie henderson is the executive director and i think she and a few other people started it she's a former barrister and worked with uh, in in immigration um i think on behalf of people that were coming into the uk it has grown tremendously and and the again the wonderful thing is that they've been doing programs for a long time so finding finding a a physical space is sort of bringing all those different pieces into one place um, or so there's a lot of you know there's an education team a great fundraising fundraiser on on staff as well as people that build amazing exhibits and then they do programs with other people that come in artists that come in and, and lead programs as well
1: we asked Jason his thoughts on what has been going on in the media after the killing of George Floyd in the US and the response to this by people from all backgrounds
2: I guess the first thing I would say is it's it's a bit. In, I'm. I'm a bit insulated by. Yes, there's social media, and every day we we open up our phones, and it's it's just it's maddening to think psychologically how we start our days by turning on our phones and looking at Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, um, and what that does to us, the headlines. But I would say I'm a bit insulated by being surrounded by people of like mind. So when I read about, not to say that I'm I don't have people in my life that I disagree with or that we have debates. But I think that there are are a lot of people that I don't interact with on a regular basis who, who do fall in that shock and awe or disbelief or what is, you know, how could this be happening? And they don't understand the circumstances. I think I, I have the benefit of because of the work that I do, uh, because of the people that I work, I choose to sort of surround myself with. It is a conversation that can be had. So there's a, there's a groundwork with which I can have that conversation. I think, In my experience, sort of trying to address the question, the online space is where it gets a bit tough Mm -hmm. because you're interacting with people that you don't necessarily speak to every day, people that live in a different country, specifically the United States, or people that live here that don't understand what's going on in the States. I'll give you a quick example. Um, Sometimes with social media, I try to post things that are not necessarily, you know, an A to B to C. It's like I try to post something that's a, a little makes you think a little bit or... You have to dig a little bit. If you don't know me, you might not get that reference from Seattle, D.C., Chattanooga, Colorado, or, whatever, or Brooklyn, or whatever, whatever. So it makes you think a little bit. You kind of have to jump through some hoops to figure it out. And I posted something about the protesters recently, about a month ago, who were protesting the lockdowns in on state capitals with automatic weapons and not being properly checked. And it basically... Related to these individuals should be treated in the same way we have treated people who are fighting for a woman's right to choose, or free health care, or an end to police violence. Once you know, ironically, right before this this horrible um, killing of George Floyd, and there's a there's a, a colleague of mine that posted in the comments asking for clarity. Fair play. If we were talking about this in person, someone could walk up and say, I don't understand what you're talking about. Can you please explain it to me? However, in the moment, because it's Facebook, I always tell my friends, Facebook is not a safe space. Several other people sort of sort of on jumped on it. Mm-hmm. And because the topic is very volatile and we're dealing with the United States and the UK, this person is from the UK. So there were some people from the US who, who responded. And so I took it offline. I explained, you know, I sort of explained the situation to her off, you know, in the mess in messenger. Um, but I just told her, I was like, this is, this is my experience in having these conversations in multiple places where in an online space where you're, you've got people that, you know, there's an expectation that these are understood at a certain level. And, uh, you know, the converse is true. Like I've been in situations here where the the opposite is true, where I've been in conversations here in this country, where I'll step into something in an ignorant, you know, saying something ignorant, ignorant that I don't, understand people have to say well this is this is the history of you know geographically or historically of you know where you're at and what you need to know about the situation actually properly have a conversation about it but i think for me especially having moved around a lot especially coming here and living in this country and with the work that i choose to do i have to be comfortable in that vulnerable space or at least know that there are going to be moments when i say the wrong thing and just hope that I can learn something from that experience and hope that the people around me understand where it's coming from and that, um, you know, I can build from
3: that. I felt like, um, there's been a lot of questions asked of me as a a black woman about, I feel a little bit like a a resource in some respects that people are looking to me for perfectly innocently and it's all really great, but you know, um, you know, what can I, what books can I, can I share with my children yeah, yeah. and what can I you know all of this kind of stuff and I yeah it's quite heavy it's quite like, heavy load
2: yeah you know I, mean, I, I to respond to that I agree and I think one of the things that makes I think with these types of killings it's it's hard to figure out other ways to call them you know other things to call them but in my mind it was murder George Floyd. This was a murder of a of a of, a, of a man. Absolutely. Doesn't matter what he did before. Doesn't matter what he was charged with. It's on and it's on film. Yeah. yeah. So when you take consideration, take into consideration all the things that have happened recently. When you take into consideration what's happening with the the health pandemic, and the fact that Black and Asian people are disproportionately dying and affected by this pandemic, and that the UK government and the US government are not handling this. The way that they should i think it's fair to say that's my opinion at least when something like this happens the outrage justifiably so is amplified and i think what i've noticed about a lot of the response in this time is especially from people of color black people specifically and you know white people who know better who understand history or might have a bit of a sensitivity towards this type of thing There is an understanding that it is not the responsibility of the people that have been dealing with this for years and years to educate those who are not affected by it at all. And there is an understanding that by remaining silent, you're sending a much more profound message to the people around you, to the communities around you, than if you say something incendiary. At least if you say something incendiary, or you ask a question, or you... Put, sort of put yourself in a vulnerable situation you're expressing a concern you're you're expressing an interest mm. and i think what's come what's come out in this instance which has come out in the past but i think it's much more profound the this in this instance is the silence is much more deadly because we're ignoring something that we we all we know to be true and and i think we have the ability to fix and that we have the ability to put pressure on those in power to, to fix so Yes, when I get asked those questions, it's it, it I, I wince, I cringe, it's like, you know, but also I also I can you know, I I, I know the people who are not saying anything mm-hmm. in my life, the people who it's just it's 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 maddening. That's that's the scary part for me. Yeah. So the reactions there's lots of different reactions, but you know, it's horrible.
3: Yeah, it's been a really yeah, difficult, difficult time. I kind of feel like there's movement though. And Yeah things are moving in the right direction. I feel, I hope. That's you the only to. thing I can cling on to. You know, this time, exactly. is
2: hope, you know? And definitely from people, from individuals, yeah. just people on the ground, I think that there's much more of an awareness and that, that sort of, how could this happen, evolves into, well, we've got to do something about this. Mm. I, I, I'll preface it by saying, one of the things that makes, you know, the outrage towards the killing of George Floyd or the outrage towards police violence mm. so hard to deal with is that a lot of the the understanding of what racism is, is contested and argued. And, you know, what is racism? Does it mean being called nigger when you walk down the street? Mm. Or does it mean being put in a, a chokehold by the police? Or is it microaggressions? Or is it being disenfranchised? Is it being excluded? And I think When you understand that racism is about power Mm. and that you understand that it doesn't necessarily have to be the former, that it can be the latter, Mm -hmm. it opens you up to understanding that racism is many can be can take place in many forms in 2020. Yeah. And that we deal with it on so many different levels. But the more you think about it, it's like, yeah, all my life I've dealt with the fact that I've been reminded Mm -hmm. that I am to use the words right out of you know government former government policy, I'm three I'm considered three fifths of a man of a person according to these systems, according to the government, according to in, in people's mindset because that has not changed. So when you think of it on that level, you can you can you can you can recall I can you I can recall countless of instances where in my mind that was racist. It presents itself in it, different ways, exactly and different forms. Um But having said that. You know, I grew up moving all the, all around yeah. the country. I moved I, I, what would be considered in this country lower middle class and in America working class. As I mentioned, both my parents, um, you know, have advanced degrees. They both went to university. Mm. I was constantly surrounded by people who were educators, artists, you know. I'm not saying that I wasn't in places and didn't experience racism with a capital r and there there are not stories to tell it's just that i believe i was in spaces where i was insulated from a lot of the things that that happened to a lot of other black people in america you know even saying that it's like you it's it's hard not to hear that as putting a value judgment on these different experiences Mm -hmm. because as far as i'm concerned obviously being killed by the police because you're black is not the same thing as you know missing out on a job opportunity however all too often i think we ignore those microaggressions in those areas where we where we don't call it out and those things go under the radar therefore racism itself and those larger transgressions become much more profound because we're not really seeing how pervasive it is in the culture yeah so does that make sense absolutely
0: mm-hmm. i mean and i think that's why kind of i asked the question or it's why it's important for, pe- for me, I can only speak for me, to hear no. other people's stories of smaller transgressions because actually I think they're not told. We see the big things yeah. and we don't see the everyday things because people internalize them or I think probably, you know, as we talked about to cope. And so because so many of those smaller things are not reported or yeah. discussed, then it's easy for someone like me to forget that there's a constant problem mm-hmm. because those things are not, and then there's a big flare up in the media every now and again and then things go quiet and it's almost like I think we need to be you know, maybe, maybe it's wrong but I do think we need to be reminded of everyday racism
2: When I was probably 10 or 11 I was hanging out at a friend's house down the road and you know, all I remember is he spit on me and I went home I told my mother and she marched me right down to this guy's house and we sat down with his parents and I remember there being a conversation. I remember her being incredibly angry and I remember her talking to me afterwards and before and, and the whole way through. I never hung out with that guy again. I probably saw him in you know in school or on the block. He lived right down the street from me, but that was it. And at, in, I'm in my forties now and I can imagine if that happened to me later in life, I probably would have reacted much more differently in the moment to him than I did then because I just didn't at 10 years old I didn't have the tools to you know, mm. you know I, it just mm. it was so fresh and I think that's a lot that that also is something to be said about acts of racism and sometimes when something happens to you even if you have the tools whether it's good or bad to react sometimes you don't because it's just did that just happen I can't believe that just happened Yeah. yeah. and then looking back sometimes I wish I had the tools to in my 10-year-old self to react differently. (laughs) Um, Second second, uh, situation sort of happened quite a bit. I just remember quite vividly when I moved from Washington, D.C. to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Now, Washington, D.C. is the South, but people don't really realize that. They think that it's, you know, this metropolitan place, it's the North. But I mean, it is... I mean, the United States itself is, is one big plantation, but that's a conversation around the time. I remember getting reactions from people about my sort of... Place in, for lack of a better word, society. So, a lot of the kids that I went to school with, this is fourth grade, year four, they were asking, Oh, did you, you know, did you, did you, did you apply to go to school here? Like, what, you know, I just remember questions like that coming from some, from some of the white students. Was it quite a mixed school? No, thank you for asking. That's a good question. It was not. That particular school was a private school. So I was surrounded by white kids. I was one of very few white kids. And it was uh, one of very few black kids in a a mostly white school in Chattanooga, Tennessee in the mid 80s. And so it was a very, very um, segregated Hmm. city, very segregated environment. So but I was that was new to me because when I lived in washington dc it was a rather diverse neighborhood i lived inside the district and i was a part of i went to a public school and you know all the way through the third grade and it was a very you know mixed environment yeah. except for brendan who spit on me when i was 10 years <laughs> old yeah. so that was very strange again not knowing how to handle it not really knowing how to swiftly respond yeah. um and the last which I, I can only call it racism because I, I honestly doubt that this man would have done this to anybody else. I was at a museum in sorry a gallery, a very large gallery in central London with my daughter, and we were lucky enough to be in the VIP, the members lounge. Uh, We've got a membership to this gallery, and we were we were there and having a wonderful time, my daughter and I. And We've been there before, you know, it's a normal thing. And I only mentioned members gallery because of it sort of it literally adds weight to the story like how you know gives the context gives the context these Mm. things can happen anywhere I think um, we're in line for to pay for our food I have my daughter with me I think I might have had her on my arms she might have been like three at the time and um, I was just getting a lot of static from this couple that were sort of behind us pushing us through the line and in these moments I think because of this form of micro, microaggression, this form of like tension that you have with, in this case, an older white man. Also for the fact that I, I, I suppose I don't look my age, but I'm a grown man. I'm 46 years old at the time I was 45. You know, I'm there with my daughter who's three years old. She's in my arms and we're having words about personal space. And I'm trying to hold my self, I'm trying to hold my corner and control my personal space because no one likes to be infringed upon in that way. And it ended up with him cursing me out in the line, in the members lounge with my daughter there. Mm -hmm. And the only reason why I bring that up as an example is because I can't imagine him doing that to someone else Mm -hmm. because I've, I've had that experience before where a an older white man or a white, a white man, my age, sometimes even a younger white man takes me for granted in that way. This person will move out of my way because again, three fifths of a man, you know, this perspective that this person is lesser than me. And one of the things going back to my parents, one of the things I've gotten from my parents is I will not move out of the way. I will, you will, you will acknowledge me in this space, which I think is, part of the fight against injustice and fight, you know, part of the acknowledgement of, of these things as we deal with racism, as we deal with classism and sexism, you will see me. Mm. You will see me in this space. You will wait. Mm. I will wait for you. I will wait for the person who's in front of me. Mm. That That's the way it has to be. Yeah. Um, and all too often we, we sort of, if we're in situations where we feel oppressed or put upon, we will, we will our bodies will shrink we'll, we'll move out of the way we will do something to defer to another person because of power and i think we have to teach ourselves to stand up for ourselves
3: mm. yeah, i suppose that comes with education and that's yeah. you know what you had from your parents and how they've raised you yeah. you mm-hmm. know not an awful lot of people would feel comfortable being able to challenge in that way And yeah.
2: That's the... so yeah
3: great role models
2: Southeast Salon is a networking event that strives to do three things, Um, promote people and platforms, our creative entrepreneurs who need a platform, connect creative people and entrepreneurs to resources as much as possible, and celebrate Southeast London, which in my eyes is one of the best places in the world. I started it because ever since I can remember, people in my life were telling me, that I have a knack for connecting people. And even It sounds like
3: it's come from me it's very reminiscent of what your how your parents and what they were doing. And it's kind of obviously started to seed and you know
2: I feel like my my mother just channeled you to say that because <laughs> yes. I should go back and say, yes, of course, one hundred percent. I definitely get it from my parents. Um they would always they would always tell me, we would always be in spaces. They would say, Go up and speak to that person. tell them, not to be funny, like tell them you're my son or tell them, you know, tell them who your parents are and I'd be like, I can't believe this. I'm a, they're not going to know who I am. I'm going to say the wrong thing. It's going to be embarrassing. But a man by the name of Earl Graves just passed away this year. He was the founder of Black Enterprise Magazine. I remember very, very clearly, I was very young and we were at a conference and my my father told me to go up and introduce myself to Earl Graves. And I had been doing this for quite some time. I mean, I'd met so many people just sort of in these situations where, oh, I'd like you to meet my son or you know And I walked, walked up to this man and... He's, he's he was enormous. He was very tall, and he had these huge sideburns and these glasses that seemed sort of like you know. And I remember walking up to this man, and introducing myself, and he just looked at me as if like, and who are and, you? And who are you? I, I don't know you, you know. So that was a very humbling moment. I say that to say I've always been in a situation where I'm sort of introducing myself to people, and, and
0: they trained you. Essentially, they did. They did. They and were was, training you. They you, were, even if you weren't conscious that that's what they were doing. They
2: were. They were. I was very, I was very conscious of it. I didn't know what it was. I yeah. didn't know what would happen. You didn't obviously, know the but very, Right. Mm. But every single new experience, moving around the country, moving to this country, mm. especially moving to a new country and not really having, I, I essentially started it. over. Exactly. You know, yeah. I, didn't, I From not really being able to work to getting a master's degree uh, to you know, volunteering at a marketing firm, working with young people. From there, I sort of started to get jobs, uh, and then finally getting citizenship, being able to work full time, and not sort of have that that burden of you can only work, you know, part time, or you know, if you're in school, you can work, or you have got to chase the next visa, or what have you, uh, the next um, the next thing. So, throughout throughout my career here, I was always sort of having having that experience of introducing people and. And uh, sooner rather than later, you know, uh, people kept saying you should start your own thing. Without knowing too much of the history, my understanding of a salon before the salons where you get your hair done was. Um...
0: Literary salon.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Talking so about books. And... Talking about books and, mm. and art, uh, music, things like that, or politics. Mm. And I know that it was an old French thing, and then. In the States, you know, black communities would get together in their front rooms in this, in the, in the same kind of way, but more, it's like they were, they were excluded from other places. Mm. Whereas in old times in France, they would exclude themselves from places because mm. they had the luxury of doing that. And in the Southern States, we would, we would, we were, we couldn't go to the restaurant or the pub. So we would get together in front rooms and do the same thing. So I really wanted it to be somewhat of an intimate a cultural exchange, creative exchange, as well as with a purpose and focused on southeast london because the the city is very very large and i think there's a lot of there's a lot of creativity and talent in southeast london and as i've as i've as it's grown from from space to space i've done i did four in physical spaces before the lockdown and i've done two online since i consider it to be a global access point to connect southeast london with the rest of the world Mm. so i'm always trying to look for ways to connect under a theme Mm people in Southeast London, London with the rest of the world as much as possible. And then the last thing I'll note is when the lockdown hit, I thought, well, that's it. I can't do this because mm. I, I'm, if you tell me to get a, 30 people in a room, I can do that with my eyes closed. But the online space was just not a very comfortable space for me. And two very important people to me, Kim Knox and uh, Norman Murray, both independently, who've been following this for, for, for well over a year, the development of it basically said, do it online. Everybody's gonna take everything online, keep going, you've got a great start. And from there, we sort of, together with their support and and the support of many others, uh, I I built it up.
0: Well, congratulations.
2: Thank you. I mean, it's still going. And the next one I'm trying to do, one on social justice and racism Mm. and black businesses and and safe spaces for for black people and conversations. Out of solidarity for what's going on in the States, I'm still sort of formalizing the the nuts and bolts, but that's what it's gonna be about. I think to put a point on it, I think we're in very volatile times, but we're, I don't know if it's going to get better before it gets worse with what's happening around the world, specifically, specifically in the United States, but we've got so much technology and people are connected in ways that we haven't been ever before. And I think all we can do is to use the, pri- the privilege and the power that we have and the platforms that we have to do the best that we can to bring people together, to build bridges. There's so many divisions and... It's very scary. It's a very scary time. And I think what I try to do, and this is sort of the the thinking behind the next salon that I'm going to do is just to find ways to create safe spaces, find ways to empower people that are not empowered, find ways to speak truth to power and tell the story and let people tell their own story and be clear about history. Because I truly believe that the people who are on the fence or the people that don't understand or are in disbelief, once they realize the components and the ingredients of how we've gotten to this point, Mm -hmm. we have no choice but to fight for the people who are suffering. We have no choice but to change the things that we're doing, whether that's divesting from certain corporations that are, are doing us harm or voting a certain way or getting out into the streets or just speaking to other people or just... You know starting a podcast or starting yeah. an event yeah. or starting a business okay so it's about using your platform using your power and keeping those conversations going keeping those conversations going 100 percent. Mm.
0: thank you so much thank, thank you, you for jason. having me thank
3: you me.
1: it was really interesting to talk to jason about his experiences of racism and in particular when he spoke about microaggressions It's something I've definitely experienced and I think I've become better at calling it out and challenging it as I've got older. But I know that in the past I might have questioned or second-guessed whether something was racism simply because it's done in such a subtle way. It was also really interesting to hear about how the work that his parents did with the National Urban League and how they were very much connected to that movement and how it shaped his own political thinking and in some ways shaped the work that he's doing now, the Southeast Salon, connecting creatives and bringing people together.
0: It was insightful to hear Jason's personal story. It was a reminder that racism is a manifestation of power and to hear from him about how the intersection of politics and class have contributed to recent events in the US. It was also interesting to hear about how growing up in an atmosphere of activism and being exposed to political debates has, in his own words, insulated him from a certain extent because he has a strong sense of self-worth and he feels able to hold his space and it's really encouraging that he now wants to pay forward this home education that he received and to help empower other people and i really look forward to seeing where his work with the southeast salon will go
1: if you want to find out more about jason he is on instagram at jasonwhpage the southeast salon is also on instagram at se london salon you can find out more about the Migration Museum at www.migrationmuseum.org.
0: If you're a new listener to Portrait of a Londoner we'd love to hear from you. Please join the conversation by visiting us on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or you can email us and our email address is portraitofalondoner at gmail.com. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast and thank you for listening.